0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the fourth episode of season two of North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Broll. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, and inland seas at coastalnewstoday.com. If you like North Coast Chronicles, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is Green Curls on the Water, Harmful Algo Blooms in the Great Lakes. To help us understand these floating mats of algae in the Great Lakes is Dr. Sylvia Elena Newell, a professor of earth and environmental science at Wright State University. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Newell.
1: Hi, I'm happy to be here.
0: And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Mr. Buckingham, what's going on?
1: Well, Helen, it's a beautiful day here in Southern California, and I'm excited for this harmful algal bloom show.
0: <laughs> well, I love your enthusiasm. And I, I, I think we're going to learn a lot that we thought we knew, but uh, going to learn it correctly today. So we're so glad that uh, uh, Professor Newell could be with us. Now, Tyler, I don't know if you remember in our April podcast, We briefly discussed baseball, and I noted that I was a long-suffering Cleveland Guardians fan, hoping that the 2022 season would be gentle on us. And then you casually said, well, there's always next year, Helen. And I said, well, geez, Tyler, it's only April. Um, But here we are in October, and if you want to say it again, I will understand.
1: Well, Helen – Uh, I have been I've been following along from afar. And on this, I think you and I both have next season to look forward to because my beloved Los Angeles Dodgers were eliminated in the first round.
0: Yeah, it's pretty sad. Well, I wondered, though, since you used to live in Texas, whether you were an Astros fan. And then I was going to have to berate you for that because, um, you know, my feeling is if the Guardians are going to lose to the Yankees, then the Yankees should take it all. You know, but mm-hmm. no, nope, they got beat last night. So, yeah, I think we're both out of luck and we have to wait again next year.
1: There's always next year.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so um, the last episode, um, our September episode, I mentioned that. 2022 was the 50th anniversary of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. The binational agreement was a big deal back then, and it has been updated three times since, whereby Canada and the United States mutually agreed on reducing the impacts from a range of pollutants into the Great Lakes. New laws reduced concentrations of phosphorus and household detergents, and municipal sewage treatment plants were upgraded or expanded. But in a 2017 report by the International Joint Commission, the IJC noted that while there had been progress to clean up the lakes, significant challenges, including the increase in harmful algal blooms, particularly in Lake Erie, persisted. The National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, reports that harmful algal blooms have been recorded in every U.S. coastal state, and their occurrence may be on the rise. Further, they noted that harmful algal blooms are a national concern because they affect not only the health of people and marine and freshwater ecosystems, but also the health of local and regional economies to the tune of billions of dollars per year. Each spring, I really anxiously await for NOAA and their projection on the extent of harmful algal blooms in Lake Erie. Now, blooms obviously can put a damper on a vacation, but more importantly, the negative environmental impacts of a large bloom can be scary. Dr. Sylvia Elena Newell is a professor of earth and environmental sciences from Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. She received her PhD from Princeton, and her dissertation focused on the biochemical cycling of nitrogen in low-oxygen marine environments in Chesapeake Bay and the Arabian Sea. In particular, Dr. Newell assesses the impacts to the ecosystem from climate change combined with human contributions to the nitrogen cycle. Dr. Newell, thanks again for joining us on North Coast Chronicles. I I know I didn't share the full extent of your research and publications, nor that you are the first female professor in the Earth and Environmental Science Department, and in a field where there are less than 1% Latinas. Congratulations. Thank you. So I I want to ask, because um, I'm always interested in providing more diversity to STEM careers, where did you get your inspiration to be in STEM?
1: I actually started doing Science Olympiad when I was in middle school, and for one particular event, the periodic, periodic Table of Elements, I got to speak with a friend of my dad's who was a professor at Miami University. And he's like, oh, you ask good questions. Come back later if you want a job in my lab. And so later in high school, I went back and I started working for him and I actually got to go to Antarctica to do fieldwork, one of the ice-covered lakes there.
0: In high school, you got to do that?
1: Well, I went my first year of college. Wow. Um, I was sitting on an ice-covered lake wow. in the middle of Antarctica, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're going to pay me to do this. I need to do you know, something like this so I can keep doing this for the rest of my life. And I have now gotten to do research on several continents.
0: Wow, that's awfully exciting. Um, and uh, Antarctica is just not for the faint of heart because just getting there <laughs> takes a long, long time. So congratulations, uh, because it sounds like you have been um, – really working towards extraordinary things, and I can't wait to learn more about it. I'd like to ask a, a simple question because I have had people ask me this, and I kind of wonder myself. I've heard the term red tide, which seems to describe an algal bloom, but are harmful algal blooms and red tides the same thing?
1: A red tide is a kind of harmful algal bloom, and it's one that we typically see on the coast of, say, Florida or the Gulf Coast. It's usually in salty water rather than the blue-green algae that we get in freshwater.
0: So you answered one question, that blooms are also in saltwater. I mean, um, I think um, we hear about fish kills and things like that um, in Florida, and those are primarily from a red tide?
1: Often, yes. Um, Red tide is, is the major one that hits along the coasts of Florida, and that particular thing, that kind of algae, is called a dinoflagellate. It's this weird little thing that's got these two flagella that whip around and spin it really fast, And that dinoflagellate makes a neurotoxin that can kill fish and actually birds and even humans if we, you know, were to consume those.
0: You know, when you start to do research, and of course, I've actually seen harmful algal blooms because I'm from Lake Erie. um, But they seem to look like green curls on the surface of water, hence the title of this show. But what form do they generally take, and how do we identify them?
1: So. Algae blooms can look very different depending on the species of algae, and in this case, the ones we talk about in freshwater, like I said, are blue-green algae or cyanobacteria, and they've actually been around for billions of years and billions of years longer than any other kind of life on the planet. So they've been around a long time. But the one that we worry about the most here in the state of Ohio is something called microcystis. And if you look at it under the microscope, it forms these little green balls, and they cluster together in what we call a colony. So it looks almost like a bunch of green grapes, but in a sort of a circular form. You can see it pretty easily under a microscope. And that particular kind likes to live on the surface of the water, and it forms those green curls. When it gets really bad, it's a scum so big you can pick up physically with your hand, although I wouldn't recommend it unless you're wearing gloves. But in other parts of the state, and other reservoirs, we can sometimes have different kinds of algae like planktothrix and they look like skinny pieces of grass after your lawnmower has gone through, and those suspend more um, throughout the water column, so there's not really that green scum on the surface.
0: So, Seaweedy seaweed, you know, like I always think of as algae growing up, the seaweed, and and uh, seaweed would get so like if the water was clear and had a lot of nutrients, certainly in the many years ago <laughs> um, in, in Lake Erie, you know they, it would grow a lot and then it would break off, and you'd have this seaweed pile on the the, the shore, but that's not har- harmful algal blooms, right?
1: No, it's not. Seaweed is a, a pretty needed part of an ecosystem in fact. It can provide a lot of shelter for juvenile fish species and other, uh, we call them benthic macroinvertebrates. You can kind of think about them like mm, tiny crabs or baby shrimp, that sort of thing looks like that.
0: Okay. So, well, that actually makes me feel a little bit better. So blooms um, are bad for people and animals, but like, what do they do? Could like, um, I'm guessing if you're just swimming it, can you get sick or you have to ingest it or obviously animals would drink it, they'd get sick.
1: So it really depends on the kind of bloom that we're talking about. There are some, for example, brown tide, which is a totally different organism that's not actually dangerous to your health at all. It's just that we call it a nuisance algae. But here in Ohio, in the where we have these cyanobacterial blooms, sometimes those can make toxins. And mostly the toxin that's most widespread is something called microcystin, and it's a liver toxin. So you really have to ingest large quantities of that for it to be really bad for your health. Um, However, there are also other kinds of toxins that are neurotoxins, and that's the kind where if your dog drinks it, it could basically die very quickly. Um, or cylindrospermopsin, anatoxin, those things are really bad. And our Ohio EPA fortunately tests for these things around the state of Ohio. You can go to the Beach Guard website for any different body of water you're thinking about going to, and you can see the report on the algae for that site, and you can make your plans ahead of time based on that. Wow,
0: well, yeah. So, what you're, you know, we talk about Lake Erie and the Great Lakes, but it can be in ponds and, um, and uh, obviously other lakes. What's the, what is the, the link again, or what's the name of that again? It's
1: called Beach Guard, and it's something run by the Ohio EPA.
0: Okay. And that would cover all bodies of water in Lake, in Ohio, not just Lake Erie way. Correct. Okay. That's
1: all the, all the major ones, maybe not your okay. farm pond. But okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about that. Think about a farm pond. What if you're have livestock and you rely on the livestock being able to drink from that pond? And, and I'm just thinking about the impact of that and, or your dog, you know, before you can tell them not to, you know, keep them away. Um, you know, I just, that's so scary. Um, the impact is just so far reaching. And, you know, um, I know that when, um, like if I'm at the lake and um, it's, you know, a time of year where they're really warning you about the harmful algal bloom, you can kind of see how scummy it looks. You go, okay, no problem. I'll stay away. Got it. But um, I. I worry about it, about like running into it. So let's say, um, let's start with Lake Erie because we're talking about the Great Lakes. Is it closer to shore? Is it out, like if you go out in the middle of the lake, are you going to find it? We're, you know, I guess I'm trying to say, how do you avoid it?
1: It really depends on the wind. And that is the tricky thing about it. NOAA does a forecast that will give you a general idea of maybe what it's going to look like for the year. And then they do satellite monitoring so the NOAA Gleral, um, which is the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab in Ann Arbor, puts out pretty frequent reports showing here's what the bloom looks like this week, here's where it is this week, but it really depends on the year and the wind exactly where it is. And so when it's out more in the middle of the lake, it might impact our fisheries more, but when it's along the coastline, particularly in these very well-populated parts of Ohio, it's it can be really bad. Um... And it it has a a huge impact economically on the state of Ohio. For example, that I don't know if you remember in 2014 there was a really large algae bloom that got into the drinking water in the state of or in Toledo their drinking water intake. And they they estimate that that three day event of shutting down the drinking water intake in Toledo cost 65 million dollars. But it's not just the four million dollars that it costs for water treatment. It was $18 18 million dollars in decreased property value, 20 million dollars in decreased tourism, 23 million dollars for decreased recreation. So it has a really big economic impact on the state of Ohio, and that was just one event in 2014.
0: Wow, you know, I'm I'm embarrassed to say that I naively thought that harmful algal blooms were specific to Lake Erie, um, and they're not, obviously. But how how um, how extensive is it in the Great Lakes overall?
1: In the Great Lakes, for the most part. Um, The Western Basin of Lake Erie is sort of special in the Great Lakes in that it's very shallow. It's kind of like a big, warm, shallow puddle compared to the rest of the Great Lakes. And so having both the Detroit River coming in there, but also specifically the Maumee River that comes in through Toledo, comes through a really big agricultural area, adds a lot of nutrients to the water. And so we have this special mix of warm water water. That's shallow, where we get a lot of nutrients. That's really bad for water quality. It just, it's very, it's great for cyanobacterial blooms. Now there are other parts of the Great Lakes, like Green Bay or Saginaw Bay, where we're seeing more and more algae blooms. Um, and these are because again, you get these in shallow inlets, right, where you get more nutrients coming in from rivers, more sunshine because it's shallower and everything's getting warmer. Is it safe to say that currently
0: you may not see blooms in Lake Superior because it's colder and the bacteria can't grow in that cold water? Or is climate change impacting that?
1: So traditionally, there have not been much in the way of algae blooms in Lake Superior. However, in the last decade, they've been seen two or three times in shallower coastal areas like the Apostle Islands. And the exact causes of that are not entirely clear, but it certainly has to do with coastal warmer waters with an influx of nutrients into it for sure. But we think it has to do with storms stirring that up specifically in, in Lake Superior potentially. Is, is,
0: do blooms grow specifically because of excess nutrients? And are we talking about phosphorus? or is it I mean, I'm from the western basin of Lake Erie and I certainly understand the Maumee River and I certainly understand that there's a lot of farm runoff um, in Ohio. And, um, but is that really the main cause of algal blooms is, is high nutrients?
1: So high nutrients plus warm temperatures plus shallow water with a lot of sunshine is basically the recipe to make an algae bloom, yes. There are, so the nutrients we're talking about mostly are nitrogen and phosphorus. And these little uh, algae are able to fix carbon just like plants do, right, by using sunshine. So they they need a shallow place. And we see them all over the world. There are algae blooms on six out of seven continents in freshwater. So it's a very common phenomenon and becoming more so across the globe right now as we yeah, farm more, put more nutrients on our land, make more food, feed more people, and as things are getting warmer.
0: When we had high water in the Great Lakes and in Lake Erie, does that kind of flush things more? Is it the high water that does it or is it currents that do it? What's that impact? Was that a good thing um, for the prevention of algal blooms?
1: Well, it really depends on the scenario. One of the reasons that we're getting these blooms now potentially is that it's not just about the nutrients that we add in the watershed to be able to grow our crops that eventually makes it into the lake, but also climate is changing. It's not just about it getting warmer. It's about these rain events. So um, there's a professor at Notre Dame University, uh, Jen Tank, who does research on runoff of farm fields in Indiana. And then I forget whether it was 2018 or 2019, they had that really big storm that flooded like all of north central Indiana. And something like 90% of the phosphorus that went off that field in the entire year came off in that one 24-hour period because that storm was so intense. So the more we get these really Big storms, the more they're going to flush everything off a field and push it into a lake. And that just depends on what time of year does that happen, right? Is it at the peak time for you to get an algae event? And we're trying to figure out in what ways can we better protect our farm fields from that because it also washes off soil that's really important for fertility, for being able to grow our crops.
0: You know, it's so interesting because when I was a kid, the big thing was no till farming right, as a way to prevent soil erosion, I think. But does it turn out that no-till farming actually contributes to runoff of nutrients?
1: There's some evidence that shows that no-till farming is really good for nitrogen retention in soil, but might be less good for soluble reactive phosphorus, which is the kind of phosphorus that is really easy for algae to use. Um, And I'm not sure that I think the data are are really clear that's still a very active area of research, but there's some indication that some of the management practices that we use might be better for one nutrient than the other.
0: Well, that's a real catch-22. Oh, my gosh.
1: It is one of the things we're working on. But any given field um, can have really different levels of phosphorus. And so every farmer sort of has to look at their own land and do... Well, so here in Ohio, if you're in a distressed watershed, like around Grand Lake St. Mary's, every farmer has to do soil test phosphorus testing. So they go around and look at essentially, okay, how much phosphorus is already in your soil? So how much can you add? And you're usually only allowed to take or add the amount of phosphorus that your crop can take up.
0: That's a great idea.
1: And so they can only enforce that in a distressed watershed but it seems to work pretty well because in Grand Lake, although it still has a year-round algal bloom, it's definitely getting better just slowly over time.
0: Well, that's that's the only the first good news we've had so far. Oh man! So well, so let me ask you about fishing. Um, um, and it's such a loaded question. I don't mean it that way, um, but I, I'm should I be eating the fish? You know, should I be eating the the, the fish out of the Great Lakes? I mean, I'm not going to stop because it's good, tastes good. I'm, gonna, I'm still going to go fishing. But what kind of cautionary um, prevention should a person think about if they are an active recreational fisherman?
1: So, if you see a surface scum on the water, I would definitely not fish there. However, the way that the blooms move around Lake Erie, in particular, it's really only about six weeks of the year that we have a maybe eight that we have a particularly bad bloom. And in that case, I wouldn't. Fish close to shore in an area that looks bright green. You know, if you're out in clear water, out in the central basin or in the eastern part of Lake Erie, your fish are fine. And even in parts of the western basin, there can be a whole chunk of the western basin that doesn't have any algae bloom in it. These the NOAA reports that come out weekly are really good for telling you where the bloom is and where it's been recently. So it's easy to look at that. But I wouldn't be fishing cat catfish out of a you know. Harbor right on the lake front that looks bright green. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. Those bottom feeders that filter a lot of water and stuff like that. Yeah. I hear you.
1: Yeah. But perch and walleye in the middle of the lake, you're probably good.
0: So let me ask you about zebra mussels and that zebra mussels filter a lot of water. I realize they're an invasive species, but um, after zebra mussels, the water seemingly seemed more clear, Um, at least least where I am in, in Lake Erie. Are they... Actively, um, I don't know if you, you know any kind of research like this, but are zebra mussels filtering out any of this bad stuff? Because nobody eats zebra mussels.
1: <laughs> so zebra mussels have been replaced by quagga mussels for the most part in Lake Erie. While well, they're they're coming up, quagga mussels. Um, the bad thing about the mussels is that, yeah, they do clear the water, but they don't like the toxic algae and they spit it back out. Jeez. So, <laughs> so they're smarter than we thought. Um, and the other thing is that um, just like any other animal, they have waste, right? And that waste has nitrogen and potentially phosphorus in it. And so it can recycle really bioavailable forms of the nutrients. So it clears the water initially, but it can... Change the system from the bottom up by possibly creating more of these recycled nutrients that are easy for the algae to use.
0: Oh my gosh! Okay, so here's another question: Is there any way to treat the water and and to get rid of it? Like, let's okay, let's say um, you know you really rely. When I was growing up, of course, we used water from the lake. I think for. Uh, you'd heat it up and use it. It's kind of crazy now to think about. Uh, we didn't drink it, um, but because um, we had a well for that. Um, but I mean, the thought of even doing that now is just like appalling to me, um, or scary for me. Is there any way that you could boil it or treat it to get rid of the you know toxins and make it usable? If you had to,
1: so in a small system, you can treat it with an algaecide. And that provides a temporary relief for like a farm pond. And until you have enough rain with enough new nutrients coming in for it to grow back, you'd have a reprieve in your pond if your kids wanted to go swimming or something. In a lake that's bigger, that gets really hard to do um, because there isn't really a good treatment. If you've got a small pond, you can dredge it, you can treat it. If you've got a big or like Erie-sized lake, really the only thing that you can do is Fix what's going in. You just need to have fewer nutrients going into the lake over time. And like I said, we're starting to see changes in Grand Lake St. Mary's. Even though it still looks and is very green, it's a lot less than it was a decade ago. Things are start. We're starting to really see the needle move. Probably need twenty times as many wetlands as we had a couple years ago in Grand Lake. But it's happening, and I'm hopeful that the same thing will happen for Lake Erie as well. We have uh, a new bill that uh, Governor Mike DeWine signed called H2Ohio. And the idea is to try to improve water quality across the state of Ohio. And we have a uh, monitoring team through this group that I'm the president of the Lake Erie and Aquatic Research Network. And the Ohio Department of Natural Resources is uh, approving and permitting all these new wetlands around the state. And our job is to monitor those wetlands to see, okay are all the kinds of wetlands that we're getting equally good for removing nutrients or are some kinds better than others. So how can we better spend taxpayer money as we go down the road to try to improve water quality? But we've got 120 something wetlands already in the past two years. So we're really, we're really moving the needle. It's just a slow process over time.
0: We did an episode on uh, three conservation heroes from the great lakes and, um, I was really impressed with the amount of preservation they're doing, land preservation, uh, coastal land preservation, protection of the wetlands. Um, so I, don't, I, don't, I think they don't think about it as uh, definitely building wetlands to support the prevention of algal blooms. But um, I was impressed and I, I hope that does contribute because there's an extraordinary amount of land being preserved. And I'm going to shout out to the Lake Erie area. Uh, to um, Islands Conservancy, um, and the work that they're doing and the amount of coastal land they've preserved, given the fact that there isn't a lot up there at the islands. And um, so I really hope that is contributing and helping, certainly if you're not developing on it, and you're not farming it, you know, and you're not growing grass on it, you know, and putting fertilizer has to help at least. But um, have you been up there at all?
1: To the Lake Erie Islands, yeah, I work pretty uh, frequently, four times a year right now at the Ohio State Stone Lab, which is in Putten Bay on South Bass Island. I just spent a week up there earlier this month.
0: Um, So what's your favorite bar? (laughs) <laughs> or your favorite island wine. <laughs> you know,
1: it is definitely more limited in October, but uh, I do really like the real bar. I kind of like October, though, with fewer people and the beautiful colors. Oh, my gosh, it was just gorgeous this month. Yeah,
0: I, I only spent one winter there. But, if uh, you know, it's gotten to the point where you really can't wait to go in September and October. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. because there's less people, but it's so beautiful. I have to admit, it's funny, the Real Bar, and, and that's R-E-E-L, folks, for Real Bar, like in a fishing reel. And uh, yeah, that's a good little bar that used to be a, a place called Tony's. Um, for 100 years, and then they sold it off, announced the real bar. But Tony's was the place to go where you, you know, 50 cent uh, draft, but uh, those days are gone. But it's still, a, well, okay. Well, I'm not saying there were big drafts, but uh, at the same time, it was a <laughs> classic, classic place. So, um, Doctor, tell me a little bit more about the Lake Erie and Aquatic Research Network.
1: Well, it's a consortium of researchers across the state of Ohio, both academic and also um, can be government agencies, other people who are, anyone doing research on watersheds really within the state of Ohio. And it's really cool because we try to share resources across researchers. So if you're someone you know new starting in the game and someone else has um, a network or equipment or ship time that may be helpful to you, trying to promote the careers of new researchers, which is, I, I appreciated that when it was my turn. So, um, you know, it's nice to be able to pay it forward. But we also, our executive director, Chris Winslow, who's also the Ohio Sea Grant director, tries to stay, you know, in touch with what's going on in the um, Ohio government. And that's how we ended up doing the monitoring for this lake, I mean, for the H2Ohio program. And so, you know, we're trying to make sure that research in the state of Ohio meets the needs of the people in the state of Ohio.
0: Now that sounds really great. Um, I, I think combining resources is super important, you know, because there just aren't unlimited, you know, resources, meaning money, people, and, you know. Um, so, I'm, I'm glad that you're working together. To what extent is the research network um, looking at harmful algal blooms?
1: Well, there are a lot of us who are working on this problem because it is so widespread in the state of Ohio. And so it's naturally one thing that a lot of people pull around, but it turns out that hops are really just one you know, indicator of water quality. And we have a lot of people working on that problem from many different angles, from looking at fish communities and bird communities that live in wetlands, um, to benthic macroinvertebrates, to wetland plants. So there are a lot of people looking at the problem from a lot of different angles.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. But um, well, thank you for being president of the network. It says a lot about your, your career and your reputation that they uh, they are glad to have you be the leader. Um, so this is there even anything that the average person can do to help prevent algal blooms? Are there just some pointers? It feels so big. Um, and if you, if you've ever been on, I know you've been on the Maumee river in Toledo and it's so, um, uh, turbid, right? You can't, it's just got so much sediment it's coming in and that just seems overwhelming, but literally can the average person make a difference?
1: Well, like we talked about, mussels are one invasive species that may actually be promoting the kind of harmful algal bloom that we currently have the biggest problem with in Ohio. And so there are a lot of um, programs targeted at reducing invasive species, the, the Clean Marina program. So if you're a person who has a boat, really making sure that you rinse off your boat before you move it from one water body to another oddly enough, probably would help the algae bloom problem, trying to prevent those mussels from getting in new places that recycle nutrients that are easy for algae to use. But the other main things are to just make sure that your state representatives know that, you know, you care about this issue. And there are places where we're looking at it at a smaller scale, too, like the city of Toledo and the issues surrounding water quality in the city of Toledo are a very local issue. So, you know, who you support and how you vote and um, really matter at the city level and a lot of the communities along the Great Lakes.
0: Is there, after Lake Erie, what Great Lakes seems to be having the greatest issues? Like what, what lake are you now watching more closely?
1: I'd say Green Bay tends to have the... The second biggest set of issues, probably across the Great Lakes. But like I said, the western basin of Lake Erie really is unique across the Great Lakes, where it's the biggest, shallowest, flattest puddle area that we have in the Great Lakes.
0: Well, let me ask you about your Chesapeake Bay work. Um, um, and I spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., and had time around the Chesapeake Bay, which is so beautiful. What's going on there with algal El- blooms?
1: The Chesapeake Bay has definitely gotten better in the last couple of decades. There's a, um, it's called a report card for Chesapeake Bay, and it shows, it looks at a lot of different water quality parameters um, and then gives an overall grade. It's something they've been trying to do for Lake Erie as well, although it has some has pluses and minuses. But um, overall, the Chesapeake Bay has been getting better. A quick Google shows me that in 2021, Chesapeake Bay watershed scored a 56% or a C plus. But that's a lot better than it was a couple of decades ago. So um, it's, it's making progress slowly. It, Chesapeake Bay is a really different system than what we have in the Great Lakes, though, because it is an estuary and it's, you know, salt water partially, especially towards the mouth of the bay. And then it gets more and more brackish or sort of mixed going into fresh water all the way up at the top of the bay. So it's a really different, um, it's a really different kind of system than the problems that we have. And a lot of it is from excess nutrients from farming, but especially chicken farms around the, the watershed um but I think it's a nice reminder that we can pull together and make any system better. We
0: had a um, gentleman from fish drink um swim. I've got it in the wrong order, but gentleman out of Lake Ontario and was talking about um the fact that there are still a, still a lot of um sewage overflows in the in the Toronto area and 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 the conditions they bring to the beaches Do you happen to have a sense on the extent to which either bad septic systems or sewage treatment plants are contributing to the problem in the Great Lakes?
1: So this may not be a great question for the podcast, although I'm happy to answer it, in that um, Lake Ontario is still doing pretty well. And so, yes, there are septic systems there, but it doesn't seem to be terribly impacting the water quality in Lake Ontario. Um, I will say that for Lake Erie, the Great Lakes Commission houses the HABs Collaborative, which is the group that I was co-chair of. And we put together a couple of white papers showing the sources of phosphorus and nitrogen going into Lake, into Lake Erie. And I think it's a pretty clear. Uh, it's got some really nice graphics in it you know, showing the sources. And it really is mostly agricultural in Lake Erie. Um, but there are certainly smaller lakes around the globe and in North America, especially in the Finger Lakes, for example, where se- septic systems are a really big deal for water quality. Uh, likewise, Waquait Bay off of uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. But I wouldn't call it the biggest issue for the Great Lakes. So
0: um, is nitrogen runoff the the same or let's um nutrient runoff the, the biggest issue for Green Bay?
1: Yes, it's. Phosphorus and nitrogen runoff, nutrient runoff, again, is the issue in Green Bay, yes.
0: Are are algal blooms like a more recent phenomenon? So Tyler had mentioned at a previous podcast, I think it was the last podcast, um, that, uh, that he had talked to someone in the Green Bay area that kind of said Green Bay is called Green Bay because there's been a lot of algae over the years, and that algal blooms are not a new phenomenon. But are they more recent? Is it... Um, We've been farming for a long time, but what's kind of the history on them? When did we start to really see them become uh, a super problem, or have they been around for hundreds of years?
1: Cyanobacteria or blue-green algae have been around since definitely well before essentially the dawn of time for billions of years. They're basically the oldest thing on the planet, biology-wise. However, in terms of them being an issue for our drinking water, that is something that used to be mainly an issue in really concentrated urban areas like a lot of the dutch paintings from you know the six, 16 and 1700s show a very green looking harbor right because they didn't have any water treatment and all of the sewage was going directly into the water so algae blooms in urban areas are are not a new phenomenon they have been around for you know hundreds of years at least however the kind of bloom that's been becoming a problem has changed a lot in the last even 50 years. I would say using Lake Erie as an example, there was a problem in Lake Erie. You know, everyone knows about the Cuyahoga River catching on fire, but there were algae blooms in Lake Erie in the 60s and 70s that got pretty bad. And it's just that the kind of algae that were in the lake then are different. Those algae were something called nitrogen fixers. So those are algae that can pull nitrogen out of the air and use it for protein the same way that anything that can photosynthesize can pull carbon out of the air and use it for sugar. And so those nitrogen fixers um, had a real advantage in the kind of environment that existed in, in Lake Erie in the 60s and 70s. But when we changed the kind of fertilizer that we use, we shifted the kind of algae we have. So when the Clean Water Act was passed, Lake Erie got looking pretty good there, as far as I understand it, Um, really sort of through the 90s. And in the late 90s, we started having smaller blooms that got bigger. and have gotten really big in the last decade, well, decade and a half. Um, and the kind of fertilizer that we use has really changed. So pre-19, mid-1990s, we used a lot of nitrate or ammonium nitrate, but it turned out that's the kind of thing that you can use to make a bomb. And the Oklahoma City bombing made it harder to buy that. And we've had two shifts since then. And one is that people, if you can't buy ammonium nitrate, you buy something else There's something called urea ammonium nitrate. That's three kinds of nitrogen. But urea and ammonium are much easier for algal cells to use in the same way that soluble reactive phosphorus is much easier for algae to use. So we've changed the kinds of nutrients we're giving them to stuff that's easier to use. And in addition, we've created more animal farms, uh, especially in the state of Ohio, but definitely across the U.S. as well. And so we're adding more manure now. Manure is not necessarily a bad thing to add. Um, It actually stays in the soil better than nitrate because it's in an organic form. But if you put on more manure than the plants can take up nutrients, it will run off into the watershed. And so, like I said, we have some distressed watersheds in the state of Ohio. that are now limiting whatever, you know, the kind of kind and amount and timing of fertilizer that you can add and that includes (laughs) that's
0: that's actually interesting Um, yeah I uh, uh, so I guess the answer is to Tyler who had wondered about it um, that yes they have been around a long time and yes it depends on the size of the pond or the size of you know what's and of course remember a lot of the water quality agreement um, activities in the original Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement was to try to address the sewage treatment plant issue and um, the fact that they had to upgrade them. So for years and years, right, everything was going into the lakes. So um, at some point it just couldn't be diluted enough and I'm sure there was, but that's interesting. Um, You've done a lot of work um, on looking at an ecosystem as a whole. What's your impression or what are the observations about the biodiversity uh, impacts from algal blooms in the Great Lakes?
1: Well, anytime you have a decrease in water quality you have a decrease in biodiversity in general um, because you have, for example, the microcystis that we get in Lake Erie because it's a scum former and floats at the surface of the lake. It can shade out the things that are underneath it and really have a harmful impact on the benthic diversity because sunlight's not making it to the bottom of the lake anymore. So that can be a real problem. They're very, very good competitors to that. They're actually really funny in that they do that during the day, but then at night, they go all the way down to the sediment and they take up nutrients as they're coming out of the sediment and then move back up to the surface during the sunlight to collect energy from the sun. So they're really a very efficiently adapted organism, microcystis.
0: It's that funny, something so little and so ancient know is so sophisticated we talked about that when we talked about mayflies um, and how um, these funny little things are actually pretty sophisticated um, in their cycle so um, golly Um, you mentioned that there was um, what six eight weeks or so in Lake Erie anyway um, where the blooms predominated what what are those What's that timeline August or something because that's the hottest month
1: Yeah, August is usually the worst. It it tends to hit sort of in the middle of July and go through about the middle of September. Sometimes it goes a little longer even into October. Sometimes it starts a little sooner. But for the most part, it's sort of end of July through middle of September. But it varies a lot from year to year, and it varies a lot spatially depending on the wind that year. So your favorite vacation spot may or may not be hit pretty hard by the algae bloom, just depending on which way the wind is blowing.
0: So wind and currents have as much to do with everything as, as uh, whether it's going to be around, I guess.
1: For any given spot in Lake Erie, yes.
0: Yeah. What's
1: the, what is the contribution
0: of the Detroit River to Lake Erie towards algal blooms?
1: So the Detroit River provides about 95% of the water. But about half the phosphorus comes from the Maumee River. And that, you know, varies from year to year. But Maumee River is very nutrient-rich, even though it's a lot less water.
0: So, gosh, so we have to dam up the Maumee and let the Detroit flow. I'm, I'm kidding, of course, not, not really. But, but um, I think uh, with the high water, and you had bigger flows coming out of the Detroit River and down into Lake Erie, directly into the Western Basin, um, certainly... I think had an impact, a positive impact. But again, it has a lot to do with currents and wind, I guess.
1: Sure. And it depends on where it rains and how many nutrients got stripped off the Maumee River watershed as well.
0: So what's the the eastern end of Lake Erie like? I mean, uh, past Cleveland getting towards Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, Just less because it's deeper?
1: So we, yeah, we tend to refer to that as oligotrophic. So when we talk about trophic status, that's sort of how much productivity is there. And when you get a a lot of blooms and algae, we call that eutrophic. And when there's just not that much, we call it oligotrophic. And it has to do with the amount of nutrients in the system. And by the time things make it to the eastern basin, a lot of those nutrients have made it into some body or another that has then, you know, died and sunk into the bottom of the lake and or has gone up the food chain and, you know, fed algae, which feed zooplankton, which feed um, fish and bigger fish and bigger fish all the way up, you know, to the top of the food chain. So it gets retained in these larger bodies. And I like to say that if you think about it, it's kind of like um, the difference between, I don't know, 100,000 minnows in your swimming pool and one whale, right? The water looks a lot clearer when there's one whale, but you still have the same amount of biomass, technically, although it would have to be a very small whale.
0: That's a great analogy. Um, so, um, yes, I mean, the food chain, and the, we talked about early about the uh, benthic feeders, you know, and um, catfish and things like that, and uh, um But, um, it's been a long time since I, 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 um, kept a catfish. I'll tell you that Um, one, because they're very hard to to take off the hook. And when my husband and I would go fishing and he'd catch a catfish, he'd literally say, here, you handle it. And I'm going like, wait a minute. I don't know why you think I can handle a catfish any better than you can. Well, actually I could, but that's beside the point. In any case, we didn't eat them because they were bottom feeders, especially for those of us who grew up in a very polluted lake, you know, um, no, my, my father did. I remember that when we were younger, having catfish from the lake. But but certainly, I don't know anybody who does now. Um, the the um, international joint commission uh, is international body, obviously, uh, Canada, U.S., and they regulate waters uh, in the Great Lakes. As you know, quantid, water quantity uh, flows through down into uh, through Chicago down south. They regulate that, um, and they. They, I think, are required to report on the state of the lakes periodically. Um, What's your impression of the, like, what upcoming priorities will there be coming out of IJC?
1: So, I just helped to run a workshop uh, funded by the IJC that was for the upcoming, we call it CSMI, it's a cooperative science monitoring initiative that's run by the, the Great Lakes EPA office. And they do one lake a year for five years and then keep going, right? So every Great Lake has its own CSMI year. And so we were talking about the priorities for Lake Erie for the upcoming year. And there are a lot of things that we know a lot about, like the fact that nutrients generally drive harmful algal blooms. But there are a lot of things where we know a lot of pieces and we really need to put them together. Like one of the best tools that we have are models right? So we collect data as scientists, and then we use models to try to explain the data. And hopefully in doing so, we cannot just um, explain data that we've already collected, but predict potential data going forward, right? Depending on different climatic conditions, that sort of thing. And so one of the things that we've been talking about is the need to connect models across all these levels so that you could ask a question saying, okay, if I reduce this kind of nitrogen by this much, how would that impact, you know, not only what made it to the lake, but the benthic organisms and as well as the algae bloom. And then how does that translate up trophic levels to impact fish populations, et cetera? So that's one thing that I think um, is a really big priority in fact, in all of the lakes. Another priority that we've been talking about is the need for understanding what's happening in the winter. So for the most part, we mostly sample when the weather's nice enough to go out on a boat, right? And only icebreaker ships go out in the winter. And so we've started a, a group across the Great Lakes led by uh, Teddy Azerski at University of Minnesota. And it's a coordinated effort to sample across all the Great Lakes at least once in the winter. We actually go out and like, cut a hole in the ice and sample the water underneath it. Because we want to ask questions about things like, how are phytoplankton and zooplankton communities changing underwater? These are the things that are the base of the food chain. So um, phytoplankton, algae are kind of phytoplankton, but there's also bigger kinds of phytoplankton, something called diatoms. They're really beautiful. Actually, the Victorians used to arrange them under microscopes for fun. Um, They're just lovely. You should Google them. And those diatoms can make all the things that we really value in fish. You know, your omega-3 fatty acids and your DHAAs, that kind of thing, That those get made by diatoms and then they move up the food chain into fish. And so we want to make sure that they're doing okay in the spring and that the um, extent and thickness of ice, for example, in the winter or years that we don't have ice, we want to know how that is impacting the diatom population, for example, and then how that might impact fish health up the line. So there are a lot of questions about winter that we've had a hard time answering simply because it's really hard to sample during the winter. It's hard to get out on the water. And so we're, we're really trying to figure out the logistics of that so that we can answer some of these pretty basic questions about the health of the Great Lakes going forward.
0: Does um, better ice cover... Do we know to the extent that good ice coverage actually helps prevent algal blooms as compared to lack of ice cover?
1: That is not a thing that we know yet, but I personally think that that is probably true, but it's a hypothesis that I have that um, my lab is actually trying to test right now in that diatoms are really good at living under the ice and the better diatom population you have in the spring the more competition there is for nutrients and so the later the summer algae bloom might show up um, some of my research in Estonia and a lake there has indicated that this is true but I'm not sure yet if it's a widespread phenomenon or whether that's true in Lake Erie but that's that's my hypothesis yes
0: yeah um, and I Boy, the, it's hard to know each year what your ice coverage is going to be, right? So, I mean, you, you, you could look at the Farmer's Almanac <clears throat> or National Weather Service and you're still not going to know um, what it's going to be. And I find it interesting that there are spots, more spots in Lake Superior with lack of ice coverage. Um, and um, even in the Western Basin, of Lake Erie, one year you can have a foot of ice and then next year just nothing. So I always wondered whether the ice coverage impacted turnover of a lake and whether it was better to have turnover later in the season, meaning when the warmer waters and the colder waters mix um, and whether that had any impact on, um, you know, whether it's better or, you know, or not doesn't matter one way or the other. It just seems that if it mixes earlier, I don't know, it just, it maybe that means that the nutrients are getting mixed up earlier, but uh, obviously I'm, I'm kind of grasping at straws here.
1: Well, these are actually questions that we're really interested in right now. There are some researchers that, again, Noah Gleral, the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab in Ann Arbor, that have deployed, we call them thermistors. So it's like a buoy with a big string hanging off of it. And they've got little sensors on that string that can measure temperature and oxygen all the way down to the bottom of the lake. And um, there's a, a researcher named Craig Stowe, At who's been doing some research on this for the past couple of decades, looking at turnover in the bottom of Lake Michigan. And it turns out that even under the ice, it actually takes longer to turn over than we thought it did for a lake that deep. So I would call that an open area of research and something that I'm pretty excited about knowing more about. And one of my goals um, is to try to work with the the Great Lakes um, Winter Group and The Sea Grant programs across the Great Lakes system to try to put more of those buoys that can be left out over the winter across the Great Lakes so we can really look at like turnover and how it's changing with onset and thickness of ice and when the ice off is.
0: Are these stationary buoys or buoys that literally just can float around with the currents?
1: buoys that I know about in Lake Erie are stationary. I'm not 100% sure about the one in Michigan. I would have to assume it's stationary, but I don't know that for sure.
0: It's Yeah. I mean, realistically, the deeper the lake, the harder it is to make a stationary buoy. But I always wondered to what extent, like, you know, sail drones are very popular right now, and NOAA uses a lot of them uh, in the Arctic. And basically, they kind of go where the wind takes them to do sampling. Um, but in, in, I don't know if anything like that is has any value. And um, and it is hard to keep a uh, a buoy, a stationary buoy, stationary um, when ice coverage comes in, uh, because they get generally get shoved under the ice. But maybe it doesn't matter. And um, so, when you have these stationary buoys, are you taking measurements and recording them as the uh, in real time, or is it a matter of going back and checking them for samples?
1: So the NOAA buoys tend to come out of the water; the ones that go up to the surface. Um, in Lake Erie. So that's not, that's how they avoid the ice. But buoys that are deployed year round, I'm assuming like the one in Michigan, but definitely like the one that my um, collaborator and PI on a a National Science Foundation project I have right now is a guy named Joe Verna at University of Pittsburgh. And he's got some buoys deployed for our project in Lake Superior and in Lake Erie. And basically, we just don't measure, you know, the top 10 feet or so of the water. And so maybe 15 feet. Um, So it's suspended permanently underwater like year round. And we actually go around and pull it up once a year. And um, this is crazy photo. I think I tweeted it looking at the difference in the buoy when we deployed it one August to the next. The one in Lake Erie is completely covered in zebra mussels. It looks like one of those little shell houses you can buy at the beach in a you know, in a gift shop. It was crazy. Um, but yeah, so we, we are able to deploy those year round and we have samplers that are programmed ahead of time to take samples at a specific time interval, you know, once a week or twice a week or whatever. And, um, those are discrete samples that we have, but then sensors are generally continuously recording and it just, you know, gets saved to a little computer where we go and we pull it once a year and look at it. But the NOAA buoys that go up to the surface can have telemetry communication. And um, during non-ICE times when the buoys out, you can actually text the buoy and it'll send you back the data. Anyone can. It's a public public data set.
0: Oh, that's cool. Kind of like having a camera, you know, yeah. a live camera, but you get to see the information. Oh, that's so neat. I love the fact that NOAA works so hard to have, um, uh, and others, uh, institutions work so hard to have uh, data publicly available. I, I, I really admire that. And I think it's really important because data isn't easy to get and it can cost money. So the sharing of data, I think is hugely important.
1: Yeah. The, the NOAA buoys that are out on the great lakes, you can look at real time data from the buoys when they're deployed for most of them across Lake Erie. If you want to know what it looks like, you can go to the NOAA, NOAA glare website and look at the the buoy data. It's pretty cool.
0: That is cool. And again, that's the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab for folks. When she says glural, it's uh, what we say. So here's a loaded question. There was a western basin of Lake Erie collaborative agreement between Ontario, the province of Ontario, and Michigan and Ohio. So the goal was, I think, to reduce nutrient levels entering the lake by 40% by 2025 um, using 2008 as a baseline. Think they're going to make it?
1: Not by 2025. However, um, there are a lot of people working towards this, um, my lab included. And so, for example, my project is working with um, a woman who was at Michigan, but is now Arizona, Becca Munich, and she does a SWAT model, which is a watershed model, essentially, that looks at If you add this much fertilizer through this this kind of practice on your farm field, how much gets washed off as nutrients in the water and how much makes it out to the lake? So you can, in the model, play with changing management practices and then look at what that does for nutrient reduction for what makes it to the lake. And we're working with some social scientists and economists, um, Robin Wilson at Ohio State University and Christine Kirchhoff at uh, Penn State University. And they're working with farmers to figure out what are farmers actually doing and what are they willing to do? So that when we say, okay, this set of management practices would get us to that 40% reduction goal, maybe by 2030 instead of 2025, but you know, would get us there. um, We're recommending things that people are actually willing to put into practice.
0: I can't thank you enough for like bringing with us today. First of all, we understand it's a serious issue, and I think it's important to emphasize it's serious. So thank you for that. Um, and we do have to watch for it now. It can harm people and animals, and so it's important to know where it is and to look for it. But I'm also just blown away by the extraordinary research that's going on, your research and the collaborations you have with other folks, and the many you know researchers you talked about. Um, throughout the lakes and, and the world, um, to try to address it. So that I find really encouraging. And, um, and then we have H2Ohio, which I love. And, um, but, um, thank you to you, um, Sylvia for, for joining us because you clearly, um, are incredibly, um, well versed in the subject. And I, I really wish you the very best in your future research, and um, I hope you can come back and join us sometime. It's been great.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for asking. I just want to give a shout out to the extraordinary team that we have working with H2Ohio. There are um, like 30 major researchers across the state of Ohio from six, six or seven major institutions. Um, and what I think is pretty cool about it is that it's actually uh, run by women, even on the Ohio Department of Natural Resources side, their director, Director Mertz is a woman, and Janice Kearns is the DNR um, scientist who's been running the government end of it. And then the all of us doing the monitoring, um, Lauren Kinsman-Costello is a professor at Kent State University, and she's the one wrangling cats for us. So. It's been really an honor to work with this team, and I'm really excited to see what kind of impact um, putting together this many wetlands in the state of Ohio can have on our water quality.
0: That's a really great story, but I, I bet they feel just as honored to have you with them as well. Um, you're an extraordinary guest. Boy, do you know your subject, and I cannot thank you enough for joining us. And, and thank you, really just thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, because I'm feeling more confident that with all of these really great brains and serious um, policies that we're going to make a difference and we're all in it together. So thank you so much for joining us. It was terrific.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's something I really like talking about and I hope that anyone who's listening feels like they understand it just a little bit better now.
0: Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Well, this wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes. Send me your comments ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to North Coast Chronicles at gmail.com. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time on North Coast Chronicles as we gather to honor Native peoples of the Great Lakes. Until then, be good to one another.